With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome back to Behind the Knife with UCLA Surgery's Endocrine Group. Today with us we have Dr. Ye, Dr. Wu, Max Shum, myself, Rifka Shinoy, and Dr. Levitz. In one of our education hours with Dr. Ye a couple weeks ago, he put this photo up on the big screen, and it was a picture of himself in Australia. He was standing on the side of the street. He had a cardboard sign that was offering his services as an endocrine surgeon. The Dr. Ye that I know today doesn't have enough days in a week to accommodate the number of patients who want to be seen by him. So it made me think about how little we know about the attendings that we train with on a day-to-day basis and how much we can learn from them. It also made me wonder more about his story. So he generously agreed to take this podcast to talk a bit about himself and how he built the section of endocrine surgery here at UCLA. So Dr. Ye, where did you come from? Oh, I'm... I was born and raised here in Los Angeles, but uh, after 16 years, I, I went away for 16 years and lived in different places in the world. And when I was applying for my first job in endocrine surgery, I had finished my residency at UCSF and I was in Sydney doing my fellowship there. Uh, my original plan was to return to UCSF as a faculty member, um, but for various reasons that didn't really work out. And I, uh, and I found myself unemployed in Australia uh, and uh, broke, <laughs> briefly homeless, that sucked. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was, it was a very difficult time to be unable to job search uh, because I wasn't on the right continent. Uh, so we came back initially to, to San Francisco and then I did a, a national job search from there um, while I was unemployed and my, my, my wife worked so that we had health insurance. Um, but yeah, I looked at three jobs, uh, and there was a job in Providence, Rhode Island at Brown. There was another one at University of Chicago, and then there was this crazy job at LA. And, and the reason I say it was this crazy job is because the other two jobs had senior mentors who were decorated, uh, you know, um, sort of fathers uh, in endocrine surgery, uh, Jack Monchick and Ed Kaplan. So. Uh, that those other two places were they offered safety uh, and UCLA was sort of a high risk option for me because who was I going to call if I got into trouble and there were really when I arrived here and I, I sort of looked around there were really no patterns of referral uh, um, the original idea was that uh, Ron Bustill who was the chair at the time in 2005, uh, wanted to recruit a division chief of general surgery and an endocrine surgeon, and he also wanted to develop colorectal surgery. UCLA was evolving. The, the, the Department of Surgery was kind of evolving into subspecialization at the time. 
And they were going to bring down uh, my mentor, Dr. Kwan Yang Du from UCSF, to fulfill both the division chief and the endocrine surgeon roles. Um, but for personal reasons, that did not work out. And as they parted, as this recruitment failed, Dr. Du said, maybe you want to call Michael. And I was just brand new. I had just finished my fellowship. And so uh, I mean, it was a big difference between Kwan Yang Du and me. <laughs> Pretty big difference. 20 year, you know, 15 year difference, I think. So it's really interesting because your story is uh, an old story, but it's still kind of the same story now because a lot of the endocrine surgery fellowship graduates, when they're looking for jobs, that uh, the advice that a lot of them are getting and that we give is that there's plenty of jobs, but there's fewer and fewer academic jobs at well-established est- well programs. And so many graduates are going out there and saying, you can do general surgery and you're going to build your own neurocon surgery program here. And there's a lot of resources that AES gives that you know, prove the value of an endocrine surgery program. We didn't have any of that stuff. So can you talk about those early days of you have your office, you hang your little shingle that you <laughs> open, um, and, and how did you make it happen? Yeah, it's crazy. Um, so how to start as a new endocrine surgeon in a new location? The trouble is it involves all these skills that are never taught to us at any point in our training. And, and it's very intimidating. I don't think people feel empowered to do this. I mean, you may fairly ask, how come there wasn't an endocrine surgeon in Los Angeles for, for all those years? Why? I mean, when, whereas there were like a dozen in Rochester, Minnesota, right? Because I think we're kind of like sardines. Uh, or lemmings, you, you know, we, we seek safety and, you know, where something's already been established, there are known mechanisms, there are known pathways. Where endocrine surgery is a thing, it's it's much easier, it's much more comfortable to just, like, huddle under that, the safety of that umbrella. Uh, but what you're asking me is, how do you just strike out anew? Um, and, yeah, I remember the first couple of days, I think I received an email that somebody had called and sent me a patient, <laughs> which is a great start. Um, you know, I'll never forget the first few endocrinologists who trusted me and kind of gave me a chance. You know, somebody's got to throw you some pitches so you can show whether or not you can actually hit the ball. Um, so when I started UCLA, I met with the uh, people in public, the public health school, mm-hmm. and they showed me the epidemiology of cancer treatment at UCLA. And UCLA took care of maybe 40 thyroid cancers per year. For a city of 10 million, that is a minuscule amount. I mean, we could be taking care of 6,000 per year, right? Could, theoretically, we could be taking care of probably 5% of all the thyroid cancers in the country are probably within our geographic reach, I think. Uh, so why? Right, and I just, uh, I just thought it was odd. Uh, I, I don't think we had really institutionally made an effort to do that. But the nice thing about UCLA is it's full of talented, intelligent, helpful people. Like all the components were here. There was really good nuclear medicine. After all, the PET scan was invented here. There was a strong endocrinology program with uh, uh, individuals who are pioneers in thyroidology. This was all here good radiology, good imaging, the pathologists were excellent. So it almost required somebody to kind of just assemble these pieces in some way. But that, what you said about we are never taught that, that's exactly what you had to do. Like you had to be a manager and a businessman while starting a clinical practice. 
what did you do to teach yourself like how to do that? Yeah, I don't know. I don't I don't know if I really taught myself. I just did what I thought made sense. You know, and a lot of it, um, the short answer to how I built endocrine surgery is one relationship at a time. Mm-hmm. It's one relationship at a time with a coworker, with a potential referring physician, with each new patient you meet. Um, and initially, I met with radiology. I met with the guys in uh, an uh, ultrasound radiologist, Dr. Raghavendra. And I remember I, the first time I interviewed, I was like, well, I'm hoping to start an endocrine surgery program here. And just by his lo- his body language, I knew that he was very skeptical. <laughs> he was very skeptical. Like, who's this guy? And was this really going to work out? And, uh, and you know, th- there wasn't a significant ENT presence here. Also, many of the cases were going to an outside surgeon who had left UCLA um, uh, to go to a neighboring organization. We had a lot of case leakage. Um, so... There was a lot of meeting with people, having lunch with people, sitting quietly in that conference in the corner of a conference room while people discussed cases, and just kind of listening. Um, the first year, I think I did somewhere around fifty to one hundred cases, which was kind of a lot. Um, and I was also taking a lot of general surgery call. Um, this allowed me to learn about. Uh, Santa Monica Hospital, which is a community hospital about four miles away from here, was an opportunity. And ironically, that's where we now do most of our endocrine operations at Santa Monica Hospital. Um, but at the time, um, you know, it was kind of developing from a community hospital to a fully academic hospital. A lot of the faculty were not that happy to go down there, and I was there already. Uh, so it ended up being an, an opportunity. But a lot of it is just being a connector and sort of patiently listening um, showing people that you have something to offer them, you know, and be patient. For those of us that are soon to be endocrine surgery fellows or those that are current fellows, um, clearly we've heard this story and are kind of witnessing it, but how important is it nowadays for recent fellows to um, enter a practice with? senior partners or established endocrine surgeons versus taking on this path, which clearly is successful here, but maybe can it, can, can it be reproduced easily? Max, you ask a great question. Oh, this is the, the dilemma facing new grads. Uh, do they try to glom on to an existing group or do you strike out a new, you know, and you strike out uh, new territory. It's daunting. Uh, can it be reproduced? Sometimes, sometimes not. And there are examples of endocrine surgeons I've observed over the past 15 years who tried their own thing, and the degree of success is highly variable. Let me put it that way. And the, what really determines the outcome is not your skills as a surgeon. It's your interpersonal skills. Amazingly. It's how do people really, do people want to work with you or not? Um, uh, a lot of that gets at the backbone of what a successful collaboration looks like. So if you want a successful collaboration, you're going to have to deliver three things. You're going to have to deliver the product, right? The product could be good patient care. The product could be manuscripts. The con- product could be grants. The product uh, could be an improved workflow for the molecular diagnosis of thyroid tumors. That could be the product. You, but you, 
It's like um, it's like having kids. It's like two birds, birds coming together for a season and laying an egg. You got to lay an egg, right? Uh, the next thing is it's got to have some sort of financial footing to it. It's got to make money or at least be revenue neutral. Ideally, put a smile on everyone's face financially. And the third thing, it has to be fun. If it's not fun, nobody's going to do anything with you. So you have to be easy to work with, fun to work with. Our, our alumni in UC, from UCLA and the conservatory have joined different types of practice settings, right? We had one of our fellows who graduated went directly into academic practice in the University of Kentucky. That's a smooth transition. But the main thing I want to say to the, to the new grads, residents, and trainees who are listening is that this jump from the end of your training to the beginning of your first job is the biggest leap you will ever make. And the reason is that prior to that, we're kind of on these train tracks. We're on this train track, right? We're really good at undergrad, and we go really good to medical school, and we get good grades in medical school. And then we go through residency, which is really just being on a rail and putting your head down and working relentlessly. Then you pop out at the end, and you expect that the rail will continue. Like the rail, this railroad track you've been on will just keep on rolling. And it is so nonlinear. That's what's brutal about it. And we, I don't think we're always that well prepared for that. So striking out on your own can be successful. Um, a lot of it has to do with the local resources. A lot of it has to do with the personality of the candidate and whether or not they're, they're really going to, whether or not they're going to be really successful at connecting with others and building trusting relationships. And again, I don't think we have any specific training for that, but we're trying to do this at UCLA through the leadership curriculum. We're, this is one of the goals uh, of it. Um, so can it be reproduced? Maybe. It's, is it scary? No matter what? Yeah. Um, you know, as a person who is the, the fifth endocrine surgeon at UCLA, I'm like the pinky of the hand. <laughs> um, it certainly felt like I was starting something new, even though I was an established program, because, you know, we have Dr. Ye, who is in and out, like Dr. Livitz, that's like five guys, and I'm like James Bergen. <laughs> like, no, and uh, I think that I really benefited from uh, Michael's guidance in the very beginning, where it's really about the relationships you build with your referral base. And um, it's, and I think that's important for general surgery residents to understand because when you're a resident, you get concepts you're like, oh, this person again. But uh, when you're a young faculty, then making sure that you're spending time to develop the other person as well and have them develop you is really important. So the relationships I have with my uh, frequently referring endocrinologist is that I will discuss cases with them afterwards, my the good comes, uh, outcomes are good or bad, uh, and we get this shared sense that we're you know driving towards the same goal together. And I think with more and more of that trust, uh, that makes it easier for him to say, I want you to see you know, Dr. Wu, he's gonna take care of you, and he believes that. Now, a lot of his patients still wanna go see Dr. J because he's the most Googleable person, but it still <laughs> helps you grow. And I think that's applicable to newer faculty when you're trying to build something new is you do want to invest one person at a time and good results one at a time. Yeah, that's the beginning of it. I, I uh, James, you mentioned being the pinky and being uh, Googleable. Uh, something that 
a lot, a lot of endocrine surgeons know is that UCLA endocrine surgery from day one had a significant blood presence. And I think it's important, uh, this may seem obvious right now, but at the time in 06, uh, medical information of, in, on the web was kind of in its infancy. Um, and it was a, definitely a wild west. It's still to some degree a wild west, but at least now there are known entities like Harvard School of Public Health has a has a really good site. Mayo Clinic has a site. Cleveland Clinic, so these established sites. But there was there was really nothing academic, nothing truly evidence based or reputable in endocrine surgery. And so um, I want to counsel uh, uh, the trainees on, on who are listening that I had to be really unconventional about how I, how I approached web presence for UCLA endocrine surgery when I came. Um, there were, it was this, you know, UCLA is this bureaucracy. A lot of these academic centers really are not that nimble when it comes to marketing and the adoption of new technology. Um, but I was offered some terrible uh, arrangement with respect to web presence, and I said, no, uh, we're not going to do that. I'm, I was from the Bay Area. I was going to hire my own web designer. I was going to create my content. I wasn't going to wait in line but come behind the esophageal and spine sites, which never came to fruition by the way, ever. Had I been waiting in line for them, it would have been waiting forever. Um, but basically, we took the existing templates um, and then we created a ton of content. I learned to write for the web. I basically got tutored by our web designer, who is now, our web designer is now one of the principal designers for UCLA Health. And as of, you know, I remember the day I said I was going to sort of break this open. I said, give me these templates and we're going to deliver something on the web better than anything UCLA has ever seen. That's what we did. And from that day forward, UCLA Endocrine Surgery has had the biggest web presence of any site within UCLA Health, and that is true today. Uh, how did we do that? We just wrote a lot of high-quality evidence-based content that was good, that was useful. Um, it's no longer possible to game the search engines, right? You can't like do any tricks. You just have to provide useful content that you would use. All of us knows what a useful, you know, useful web page looks like. It's got nice pictures. It's got meta text embedded in the pictures. It's got videos. It's got content that's understandable and readable. Um, and ideally, it's got references and it, and, it, and it's actually true. Can be fact checked. So we did all of these things, sort of well ahead of our time. And that definitely helped us. What was amazing is that uh, I remember hearing some of our endocrinologists say that they will play our videos to their patients in their office meeting. Like, hey, this is a great video by the surgeons. Just watch this. Uh, and oftentimes the patients come uh, to see me for a consultation. They'll be like, oh, yeah, you don't need to tell me that. I've seen all your videos. Yeah, videos really speak to people. And I remember the day I knew that this was working because I would meet with other endocrine surgeons at other AAES sites and they would say, you should look at the UCLA endocrine mm -hmm. surgery website. Uh, another thing, another reason for that was the purpose of the UCLA endocrine surgery, was it, UCLA endocrine surgery website was not to get people to come to UCLA. It was just to be good information to patients about all the topics we cared about. And it has always been my policy, our policy, that if we got a call from Cleveland or Texas or Ohio or Maine, that we would try to find 
uh, an AAES member who was near that person. That was the whole purpose, as opposed to trying to bring, try fly everybody to Los Angeles. It was kind of an absurd idea. Um, but uh, this made our website kind of universal uh, and usable by all endocrine surgeons, uh, which is something I've always been proud of. So have you picked out your uh, TikTok handle? Have you put in the show notes? <laughs> uh, I don't have it. I don't have it. Aggressive. Something I keep hearing a theme is risk. Yeah. A lot of your decisions were and are really risky. Just from as little as saying, no, that's not the website I want to build, to sure, I'm going to take this job as the first endocrine surgeon at UCLA. How do you perceive risk when there's so many other external factors in one's life that you have to consider? Yeah, uh, what an awesome question. Uh, yeah, this hell took a lot of courage and it could have easily failed. If I had a couple bad complications early on, it would have ended. There's no question about that. Um, everybody has a different tolerance for risk. Uh, and that's what kind of the COVID-19 pandemic sort of displayed <laughs> to humanity is we all have a very different way of assessing it. Uh, I guess I'm, I'm risk-seeking, you know, uh, and, but of course you always want to have some backup plan and, and I will uh, share um, that early on when I didn't have any sort of backup surgeon to turn to if I couldn't find a parathyroid or if I got into bleeding during a neck dissection, which uh, is terrifying or, you know, then there were so many redo cases. Like uh, at any point in my career, about 20 to 30% of my cases have been redo cases and those are terrifying. And they're just, uh, you lose, lose so much life over these like years off my life sweating about redo cases. Uh, how would I prepare for that? I, I had clinic on Monday. Tuesday and I would go home with a stack of paper charts and I would pour over them after my kids went to bed and if I didn't know what to do I would call Dr. Dew and we would play out he would even spend so much time with me he would play out various different scenarios if I, if, if I, I operate on this person and it goes this way then this this way then this and it was just a lot of time dialing 415 area codes <laughs> for like, not help, but like pre-help. Did that make sense? I wanted to be coached prior to the operation on what to do if this would happen or this would happen. And it's amazing, amazing how generous they were to me. Um, and uh, I hope that if you're listening and you strike out on your own, I hope you will call, call your mentor. You know what? Call any one of us. I made, I made a fair number of random phone calls to people I had just met at AAES. I, made, I randomly called Ashok Shaha one day when I, when I had a, a thyroid cancer that went through a patient's thyroid cartilage. I was like, what do I do now? And not only did he talk to me and coach me through it in the moment, even though I had, he had no reason to invest in me, but three weeks later, he called me back to see how the patient was doing. So... Um, I think there's a lot of help to be had. I think um, it, it takes a little courage to, to call someone, but you'd be surprised how often people really want to help you. And, you know, same theme about building relationships. Um, if you're starting in a new place, like, I know that there's, like, endocrine surgeons, ENT, like, ah, like, we're on different teams kind tense. of thing. But as somebody who did and had fellowship, worked with Shok Shaha, 
We've come back here to UCLA and we've been able to make inroads with our uh, head and neck colleagues and doing our first transoral thyroid surgery and doing you know bigger cases uh, like a total laryngectomy. I think that um, you want to make sure that you don't uh, erect invisible barriers in your own mind mm -hmm. and just you know, find the people in other departments who are interested in the same clinical uh, services you want to provide, research. And I think there's always more to be gained when you build a bigger cohort than try to you know, say, how do I look at a zero sum and say, how do I take these cases from them? <laughs> I don't think that works. Yeah, this is really important. Um, all of this is possible with an abundance mindset. Meaning, if you think that the world is a fixed pie and you come in and you're just going to end up cannibalizing cases from other services, you have not helped in any way. You have not helped your institution. You probably made a bunch of enemies. Uh, and what we know from like the epidemiology of how thyroid uh, um, operations are done in this country is there's this it's like a sombrero. There's this vast terrain where people are just doing a couple cases a year with maybe not so great outcomes. And then there are these towers in the middle where people do a lot. And all of this, this year UCLA will treat 350 thyroid cancers instead of 40, right? We could do even more, we could. But I don't want people to think of like taking cases or cannibalizing cases from other services or, or fighting with ENT over territory. There's so many cases out there to be gotten. And even if all you do is like take a couple cases from any given like 30 different zip codes um, where there's a really ultra low volume activity happening, you will raise the bar, you will help those people. I think that people who have one thyroid taken away from them from some zip code, they will not even notice. They'd probably be relieved. I'd be so stressed if it were my one thyroid of the year. I'd be terrified. You know, like these days I'm terrified it's my one gallbladder per year I'm terrified. Uh, so, uh, so, yeah, I hope people will, will think in terms of a, of a pie that's infinitely large. You know, we live in a big country, one of the most populated countries in the world. So, so I hope people will not stick to this fixed pie. My question now is uh, everyone <laughs> seems to be asking me and other like senior residents why endocrine surgery or why this, this specialty that you're going into. I think it'd be pretty cool if maybe some of the faculty could say why endocrine <laughs> surgery for them. And I say that because a lot of times as interns and junior residents, when we're, we're so busy and sometimes we need to decide what we want to go into so early, what we're doing research in, and it can be really hard to figure that out. So if... We hear from you guys what drew you and maybe some of the other junior residents um, can start to think about that early on and might, might you know, find interest. Yeah, I can start. It was very difficult, actually, for me to decide what to go into. Um, what I realized uh, as a senior resident, which I didn't realize, actually, um, earlier on, was that the outcomes of the patients really matter to me. I think there are some fields that you can go into where you know, you, you do your best in an operation, you give the patient the you know, best possible hope, and still, you know, you know the outcomes may be relatively poor, like patients with vascular disease who just have those risk factors for ongoing vascular disease. Um, you know, esophageal pancreatic cancer, where the, the outcomes are still fairly poor. Um, and for me, it, it was really important that my patients overall do well. Um, and so that's, you know, endocrine surgery, we have that. Most of our patients with, you know, thyroid cancer are curable, 
hyperparathyroidism. It's very satisfying to do an operation and you really can cure somebody. And I love seeing patients, you know, for the surveillance ultrasound every year and you see that they're doing well, or if there is a small recurrence, you can take care of that. Um, so that I, I realized was very important to me. And so then having that and then the ability to really use all of the technical skills that you learned during all of residency mm -hmm. to do that fine dissection in the neck, laparoscopic surgery for adrenal surgery, um, and then the third part is the medical workup, which I find really interesting. You know, I really like how we can be experts in looking at the labs and making that kind of, you know, subtle diagnosis. Is it truly primary hyperparathyroidism? Is there a secondary cause? So it's kind of a very, you know, rich career. Um, and then endocrine surgery, I think, really allows you to do other things that you might be interested in, like have, have real um, academic interests that you can pursue. You know, research, leadership, um, it lends itself to that. Oh, we have a we have a guest star in our studio, Michael's office. <laughs> it's Nayun Kim, our endocrine surgery fellow. Now, do you want to talk about why you love endocrine surgery and why UCLA is so great? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so I went through the same process um, because I just graduated from general surgery residency, also, um, where I was initially thinking about colorectal surgery. Um, and I went through the same thought process as Dr. Lewis did, where I really cared about the outcomes of our patients. Um, both colorectal and um, endocrine surgery, I think, uh, deal with um, oncologic patients. And I really like the medical workup of those patients also. Um, and uh, the technical skills were very important to me too. At the end of a thyroid um, dissection or parathyroid dissection, I just look at the field and I go, wow, this is a beautiful dissection. Um, and I really like the finesse of the, the surgical techniques that we use every day. Um, I chose an, uh, UCLA because it's the best. <laughs> um, and I knew that I would get good training. Um, and Dr. Wu had just joined and I knew that um, I would get the breadth of um, the surgical field, um, not just the, uh, the general surgery training, but also the head and neck aspect of it. So I really like that. Um, and one of the best things about endocrine is, best and worst maybe, that you get this immediate feedback and so much rides on what you do in the operating room. For you know thyroid cancer, you get that thyroid globulin, and if there's a couple cells left, your thyroid is gonna be high. I'm like, oh damn, I, I left some inside. But if you can get it to zero, everybody celebrates because you've won. Same thing for parathyroid surgery, where you get it, PTH levels fall, you're like, hooray! Uh, but there's no worse feeling than you take out what you think is should solve the problem, and your PTH is still high. Um, and I think that is one of the most uh, you know, exciting, rewarding, but also kind of demanding parts of endocrine surgery. Uh, I have some data for us that uh, in a paper in, by Saunders by 2014 about endocrine surgery and who applies out of residency, only 5% of surgery residents go into surgery thinking, oh, I'm going to do endocrine. Um, but then a lot of people end up deciding they like it. And they like it because uh, it is very academic in its nature. Uh, we all love research so that when they looked across all the people who matched in 2014, 62% had done dedicated research time. The median publications was five at that time. It's yeah. probably even higher now. Uh, so I think that the bar to entry is you know, rising higher and 30% actually had advanced degrees and 54% were female. So I, I think we're diverse gender wise. Um, and looking at the job market now, that uh, there is a trend towards less academic jobs. When the cohort between 2008 and 2011, 98% found academic jobs. 
In 2012-2015, found academic jobs after uh, uh, they finished their fellowship. Now it might be even lower. And the amount of people doing general surgery uh, went from uh, 77% in the first cohort down to 52%. Um, or sorry, those are percentage doing mostly endo. Uh, so more and more people doing general surgery. And I think you know, nowadays we, we tell most graduates, I think they should expect to do some general surgery uh, in their first job, most of them. This has evolved so much. Uh, remember the first generation of US trained uh, endocrine surgery fellows was in 2007. So this is a relatively young official specialty. Before that, um, people were going abroad. Like when I was a resident, I asked Dr. Clark, where should I go? And he named one place in Australia, one place in England, two places in France. Wow. Uh, and as someone who didn't speak French, uh, <laughs> you know, some of the other places were a little bit more attractive. Well, who would turn down a year in Australia? Um, so yeah, that was very clear back then. There were no um, domestic fellowships. And initially, um, I think the AAES, the organization, really had to do a lot about managing expectations. Initially, people thought they would finish their fellowship and immediately be like Orlo Clark on day one. That's, that's not possible. You know, as I, as I said during my recent lecture at ATA, not even Orlo Clark was Orlo Clark on, on day one. Uh, and a number of years ago, when Jerry Doherty was the president of AAES, he sent a very clear message that I think really hit home which was that we had to be general surgeons and then start doing some endocrine surgery and then develop that over time. And, and that's more and more clear. Um, you know, most of us, myself included, did plenty of general surgery. Um, and I think that is the appropriate expectation for, for new graduates. Um, you know, we met with some of our recent graduates from two, three, four years ago at the recent American College of Surgeons meeting, and you can just see their practices maturing, and some are three, four years out, they're going to do a few hundred endocrine cases, but I re some of my happiest moments as a, as a mentor have been to receive a phone call from a trainee who was a couple years out saying, I had a really cool clinic today, uh, you know, in, a in addition to a bunch of breast, gallbladder, and hernia, I have two thyroid cases, and it was one of the best clinics ever, <laughs> you know, and, and, and that really is an achievement to cultivate these relatively uncommon cases. So I, I think we should all have appropriate expectations and, and celebrate those victories. So that was my fellowship year when Jerry Doherty was the president, and I remember at ESU him really delivering that message to all of us, and I think that's very important to have those realistic expectations so that you don't set yourself up to be unhappy. You know, if you're going into it thinking, oh, well, but I'm the one person who will find this unicorn job um, starting out at the very beginning, it's just unlikely. And then you're setting yourself up to, um, you know, not be happy at the start of your career. But if you really have those realistic expectations that you absolutely can get to your ideal job, but you just have to figure out the pathway to get there, then I think it's absolutely possible. Um, and it just requires some flexibility. You know, whether it's geographic flexibility, you know, figure out what's the priority for you. Um, you know, is it really to have as much of a clinical endocrine volume as possible, in which case it may not be academic, you know, or if your priority is to be in an academic program and to do research, uh, that, you know, the skills that you have are usually applicable to a variety of conditions. Um, and so it may be that you're, you know, doing quality type research at the beginning um, and, 
um, but you just have to have some flexibility at the beginning and know that it's absolutely possible to grow that ideal practice with time. And I totally agree. You know, I remember speaking to our prior fellows and, and you know, in the first couple of years, there's often a little bit of impatience. You know, um, they're, they just graduated. They're so ready. They're so talented. But maybe there's somebody else locally that's getting all the referrals and there's some frustration. And over time, it just continues to slowly grow where really all of our prior fellows are so successful now. Um, and it just takes time. Yeah, the, the people have been the most successful are the ones who were patient. They stayed flexible, adaptable, positive, and, and blossomed where they planted. Right? We've had some incredible examples of that. Some of you who are listening may know who Lila Morris is. Lila Morris is currently Section Chief of Endocrine Surgery at Johns Hopkins. She was the first endocrine surgeon trained uh, at UCLA, graduated in 2009. And she worked in private practice in, she, uh, in Tucson, Arizona for some time. Uh, she's the one who made that lovely phone call to me about having two thyroid cases during <laughs> clinic, and that grew and grew, and then she was incorporated into the University of Arizona. She sort of rejoined the academic track, and lo and behold, a couple years later, now she's the chief at Hopkins. I mean, that's <laughs> an incredible path, right? So it's doable, and and uh, and we've witnessed a number of our uh, other former fellows do this, as Dr. Levitt said. Yeah, and one thing I think that's important is that, you know, when you finish an endocrine surgery fellowship, you have an idea of how things should be based on the institution that you were at. And you're, maybe you're used to, you know, the cases are discussed at tumor board conference, and of course there's a way to do this, and we, you know, our patients are discharged same day, we check our we teach level after a total thyroidectomy, um, and wherever you go, it may be different, um, and to be flexible that you can't show up and try to institute all the things that you learned during fellowship on day one, but you can slowly develop that and actually make very meaningful improvements in how the system is, how the program, the care of the patients, if you are developing something that's a little bit more new, right? So if you join an established program, you have the benefit that a lot of these systems are what you're used to during fellowship, um, makes it a little bit easier for your transition. But if you don't join that, you have the opportunity to grow that and institute new things on your own. But you just have to have some patience that it's hard to show up and tell the endocrinologist, oh no, my patients can be discharged same day. I know how to manage the calcium postoperatively. You have to kind of prove that to them and just have some, some patience. But I think it it's, can be very rewarding, ultimately. Yeah, you definitely don't want to come in like a bulldozer and say, mm -hmm. you know, one of the worst things you can say when you come into a place is, this is how we did things at my mm -hmm. old place. That, that really is a universal turnoff. Uh, and to quote Stephen Covey, first seek to understand and then to be understood. And that's what you're saying. It's like first you got to, you know, two ears, <laughs> one mouth, just to get a feel for the local conditions. Because things are done, um, often the way things are done is really dependent on local conditions. And, and you may, you likely don't understand that when you're, when you're new. Was there anything that you did in those early times back in 2006 where you were like, Oh, that was, that was really bad. <laughs> I shouldn't have done that. Mistakes. Yes. Yes. Um, I will never forget, um, I paged the chief of nuclear medicine in the middle of the night. And, um, it, and I said something to him, which in retrospect was really incongruent with his cultural background. I addressed him, I think, by his first name. And that was absolutely the wrong thing to do. And he was furious. And uh, I, uh, the next day, I went to go see him in his office. 
and I went, I've done something that I really am embarrassed about because I, I pride myself on always being respectful to people and I just totally messed that up. And I'm so sorry. <laughs> and uh, and uh, he said, uh, you know, Michael, I'm, I really admire what you're doing with endocrine surgery. Um, and uh, he kind of forgave me. And we've been best buddies ever since. So this is an example. And, and this type of thing, I mean, not, not in that exact same way, but there were times along the way where by being unconventional, by being, by, uh, being risk-seeking, by, by being kind of a disruptor, I, I've stepped on my share of toes here. I've ruffled my share of feathers here. And sometimes that causes, you know, some, some lasting ill will, but more often conflict, if you, if you manage it a certain way, can actually be an avenue to better and deeper relationships. It sounds weird, but it all kind of depends on how you handle it. I definitely remember when I was interviewing for this job at UCLA, I had drank so much Kool-Aid from MSK, and again, like, be careful about what you imbibe during fellowship. <laughs> And I gave this talk, and I was like, oh, we can just do thyroid lobectomies, because you don't need to follow thyroglobulin, because people who are thyroglobulin antibody positive, their outcomes are the same. So it's basically, it just makes you feel good, but it's worthless. And of course, sitting at the table was Jerome Hirschman, one of these forefathers of endocrinology, who raises his hand and said, I'll have you know that thyroglobulin is the most sensitive biomarker for thyroid cancer. <laughs> but it's on the job, so it's okay. It's <laughs> through the conflict. I think we're kind of reaching the end of our time. Uh, as I'm getting in the later years of residency, what I'm learning is so much of what the attendings have to teach us is outside of the operating room. And the one thing that we didn't hear today was that like technically being the best endocrine surgeon is the number one key to success. It's actually, it was so much more about these interpersonal and other um, characteristics that we have to have as residents. So I think for the uh, medical students applying into residency, residency plan fellowship, like that would be my personal big takeaway is that we focus a lot on technical skills, but there's a lot more in being a surgeon and we care about those other things too, it seems like. I think in endocrine diseases, as Dr. Livingston Wu shared, being a good technical surgeon gets you in the door. And that's about it. It's kind of crushing, right? We spent like eight years of our lives, but there are a lot of technically terrific surgeons out there who do no surgery uh, because it's really the relationship part that counts beyond that, you know? Um, so we're running out of time. Uh, and many of you, as of the date of this podcast, many of you know that uh, Dr. Orlo Clark passed away uh, just a few days ago. So to close, maybe I'll just share a brief story. Um, I remember the first time I, first conversation I had with Orlo Clark, who was in the fall, right around Christmas time, right before Christmas in 1997. Very tall man. We were rounding uh, at Mount Zion Hospital, UC San Francisco. And he said, oh, Michael, where are you from? And I said, I'm from Los Angeles. And he said, oh. Los Angeles needs a good endocrine surgeon. And that was in 1997. Fast forward uh, a number of years, it's 2007. I am seeing patients in clinic as an 
junior faculty member and a, a patient comes to see me who is a 30-something-year-old woman who has had four or five prior neck operations. Her, her neck looks like a complete disaster. It has all these intersecting scars, scars I would never make, and they're like cruciate scars. Uh, and she's got you know a nodal recurrence, and I didn't know what to do with this patient. And I took the chart home, and I poured over it for hours. And at the end of the evening, I just slammed the chart shut, and I went, I, I cannot operate on this person. I'm going to kill her. Uh, because I'm going to get into something and all that scar tissue, and I said, I'm going to send the patient to, to UCSF to Dr. Clark. So the next day, I had another clinic, and another patient comes in who looks the same as this patient. She has five scars on her neck, all these prior operations. She has a bad recurrence. Uh, and then I, I was really depressed. I was like, what, what am I going to do? Uh, and, and then I said, ma'am, would you, who, who asked you to come see me? And she said, uh, Dr. Clark asked you to come, me to come see you. What this meant was that um, Dr. Clark had sent me a message about the surgeon he wanted me to become. And uh, he kind of believed in me before I really, um, before I really believed in myself. This was a transformative moment because he was telling me that he sent me here to be this person, to be this surgeon, to be like where the buck stops. Uh, and um, I operated on both patients and both did well. And uh, just never been the same person since then. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.